Welcome to What's Next, Hornet Global's podcast that puts members on the mic for thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. Hello, and welcome. My name is Leslie Thompson. I'm Director of Workplace Segment Strategy for Tarkat North America. Today, our roundtable discussion will focus on a very important diversity, equity, and inclusion question. Where are we on the journey to humanizing enterprise so that it is truly for everyone? And what role does design play in taking us there? In 2020 research with Cornet Global, Tarkat explored the extent to which diversity and inclusion is changing commercial design. Now, in partnership with HOK, we seek a deeper understanding of the role neurodiversity plays in designing a truly inclusive workplace. Thank you for joining us for this important discussion. All right, hello everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today on our presentation on neurodiversity and workplace inclusivity. My name is Sarah Oppenheisen. I am the Director of Interiors for HOK Chicago, and I'd like um, Mary-Kate to introduce herself. Hi, I'm Mary Kay Cassidy. I'm a senior project interior designer in Chicago for HOK. And I'm Kay Sargent. I'm director of workplace for uh, HOK based out of Washington, DC. And today we want to talk about an issue that started with a simple question. This came uh, about three to four years ago. A client asked us, how do we accommodate neurodivergence in the workplace? And this set off uh, a lot of research and investigation into how can we design workplaces that truly account for the entire population? And how do you design for people with ADHD? That conversation spurred uh, four different publications, which you can see on the slide here. The first report that we developed built the case around a designing a neurodiverse workplace. The second talked through what does that mean for us as designers moving forward. The third talked about the principle and elements of design and how do you actually implement this into a workplace. And finally, the fourth report dives in to hypo and hypersensitive elements of design. And all of these are available online. So when you talk about neurodiversity, we are living in a time um, of increased diagnosis and awareness around people who have, or who are on the autism spectrum, who have Tourette's, ADHD, dyslexia, and Parkinson, and this has just been elevated within the public knowledge. And people who are neurodiverse are just wired differently. They need different types of spaces. And their skills, their, uh, their thought process can be an extraordinary strength to the workplace, but they need some different accommodations than people who are not neurodivergent. So one in eight people are actually considered neurodiverse but less than 50% know it. So let's dig into a little bit about what some of the challenges that people that are neurodiverse might face. So 85 to 90% of adults that have ADHD uh, may not know it because quite frankly, it was underdiagnosed for years. Yet we have a new generation that are acutely aware uh, about their condition and are well prepared and well armed to come into the workplace expecting 
uh, the accommodations for them. We also know that adults with ADHD that go untreated tend to lose an average of 22 days of productivity every single year, which is a huge loss in the workplace, that they are 18 times more likely to be disciplined or to be considered behavioral issues and 60% more likely to lose their job. That depression impacted 14.8 million Americans before COVID. COVID has now made that significantly higher. And although depression isn't uh, a direct, um, con directly considered a neurodiverse condition, many argue that it actually is. And the majority of people that have neurodiversity are also depressed and they suffer from uh, anxiety. That 65% of the 1.2 million Americans that are on the diverse spectrum have above average intelligence. These are really, really smart people, but 85% of them remain under or unemployed, which is just tragic, especially in a time where we need the best talent. But there are also lots of advantages that we can think about when we think about people that have um, uh, neurodiverse tendencies as well. They tend to have extreme brilliance. They tend to be big picture thinkers. They think out of the box. They tend to really kind of go uh, for, uh, like no limits. They tend to be super hyper-focused, which is why a lot of companies like Microsoft are focusing on hiring people that are autistic because they found that they can be very, very focused and be incredibly productive. They tend to think about the bigger picture. They tend to stretch the boundaries, think outside the box again, which is also why a lot of entrepreneurs tend to be neurodivergent uh, because again, they aren't restricted. They have that capacity for innovation that really can kind of take them in that whole new direction. And we also have found that autistic professionals, when they are involved in a work program, have actually proven to be 92% more productive than their coworkers, which is amazing when you really think about that level of uh, additional productivity that they can bring to the table. And they tend to thrive under pressure, right? So a lot of times they've lived their entire life under very stressful environments and they tend to thrive under pressure. And, and in our world, you know, that can be really helpful. I mean, if you're in the if you're in the real estate or the facilities world or in the realm, you know, you don't have on your calendar that a pipe is going to burst at two o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday. So be prepared for that, right? So that ability to kind of take anything that comes at you uh, really can be a huge asset. And so we really look at some of these advantages as really almost being a superpower. And I think most people that we've spoken to in all of this research who are neurodiverse really do consider and embrace this as their superpower. So when we were talking to a lot of individuals doing our research, uh, we had this wonderful quote, and it's one of my favorite, is that we are freshwater fish in salt water. If you put us in fresh water, we will function just fine. But if you put us in salt water, we will struggle to survive. And I think that's really the onus is on us to create compelling environments. And so now we're living in a world that has been changed dramatically 
because of COVID. And as we go forward, we really need to think about uh, how that is impacting all of us. And you know, people that are, are neurodiverse tend to have heightened sensitivities to stimulation, but this little virus has had a big impact on all of us. And now you could actually argue that everyone has a heightened sensitivity to their surroundings. And really, um, it's important for us to really understand it and to embrace that. And we've learned a ton uh, from all of our research. But one of the things I think that's really important is that people that are neurodiverse tend to spike really high or really low on their response to sensory stimulation. But most of us really lack sensory intelligence. Most of us don't understand how we're impacted by those things. And all of us, even neurotypicals, are impacted by the, our, the sensory realm that we're in. And so in this new era that we're living in, understanding that is really critical. And we've taken a lot of the principles that apply to neurodiversity and have been able to really incorporate that into best practices for creating environments that make everyone, neurodivergence and neurotypicals, feel more welcome. And a, and a colleague of ours, Marbaum, always says that when you design for the extreme, you benefit the mean. So if we employ these principles, it can have a positive impact on everyone. So over to you, Mary-Kate. Sounds good. So when we talk about neurodiversity, we think of it as a spectrum. So uh, we think of the center of the spectrum as people who are neurotypical. But on one end of the spectrum is a group of people who we refer to as hypersensitive. So these are the type of people who basically prefer less sensory stimuli in the space. They want spaces that are more controlled, predictable environments, lower light levels typically, less vibrant colors and patterns, less variation to the sensory attributes in the space. On the other end of the spectrum would be the people that we refer to as hyposensitive. So this group basically wants an overload of sensory stimuli. They want the bright colors, high contrast, uh, vivid patterns, um, just a lot more, even acoustic value in the space, a lot more sensory stimuli in the environment. And so we started to think about, you know, exactly what this means for design. How can we translate this into the spaces that we design every day? And what's so important is evaluating the spectrum of neurodiversity from hyposensitive to hyper. Um, but also looking at the different sensory challenges within each space that we design for. So how something sounds, what the acoustics are, how it looks, what it feels like, what it smells like, and how close or far away in proximity you are to something. These are all things that really, you know, lead to the overall success of the space and nothing works independently. It all has to work together to be able to create a successful environment. And so we started breaking that down then. So, you know, we've identified the spectrum and we understand that every space that we design has to have an option to have choice and control over your space. So you have to give a variety of different types of spaces and a diversity to those different types of environments. So we look at the spectrum on the top from hyposensitive to hypersensitive. And then we kind of created this like design matrix of different small charrettes of design ideas um, on the left-hand side, evaluating it through all of the different types of sensory attributes and thinking about what that means for a hypersensitive person who wants uh, less acoustics or, you know, a quieter space versus a hyposensitive person who wants more uh, vivid tactile experience. 
And so what we say is, you know, we look at this matrix, but basically every single space we design has to be made up of a variety of these types of uh, environments. And so going forward specifically for workplace, um, we divided this by six different types of work uh, specific for workplace design. So places to focus, to process, create, uh, places for meeting spaces, conference rooms, um, places to refresh after a meeting, and also spaces to socialize uh, with the entire office. And so what does that mean for someone who's hypersensitive versus hyposensitive? You know, you have to design for uh, a variety of sensory attributes and design uh, ideas throughout, uh, across the spectrum, but you also have to break it down by space type. So for example, um, in the top left corner here, we're showing a hypersensitive space for someone to focus. So that would be a focus room that's kind of off the beaten path, enclosed, quieter, has a safer feeling to it versus the complete opposite of um, in the bottom right-hand corner, a social space for someone who's hyposensitive. They wanna be sitting right in the middle of all the action, have kind of a loud buzz around them, probably brighter colors, uh, more vivid patterns and textures and a lot more of a, a stimulating sensory experience. So Mary-Kate, I'm going to tag in and I'm going to take you on the left side of this chart. So if you think about, you know, for concentrate, I think a lot of companies today have done a really good job of creating kind of focus rooms or focus booths to help people kind of eliminate the distractions. And that's great for people that are hyper sensitive. But if you're hypo sensitive, being locked in that small room can really be totally overwhelming. And so they need spaces that maybe have fidget furniture. They can move, they can stand, they can write on the wall. That's a little bit shielded and a little bit isolated, but they're not so boxed in. And even in the hyper sensitive category, it's not just about creating the space. You know, as designers, we're all very passionate about wanting to create beautiful spaces with lots of colors and patterns, et cetera. And so they, you know, we, we've seen a lot of cases where people tend to create and put those patterns and bright colors in those spaces to make them more compelling. But if you think about it, if we go to the next slide, Sarah, we can see that literally sometimes having all of that color in those small spaces actually is totally overwhelming. So if you're trying to create a space where people can control the amount of stimulation, you really need to think it all the way through, like the space to the left that has a quiet on the door, that might be a little bit better, right? It's the right colors, et cetera. But we need to think about the application as well as we go forward. So the goal here really is to think about this, is how do we take those six modalities of work that Mary-Kate talked about and a hyper and a hypo version and blend those into an environment seamlessly? Seamlessly is really an important question, part of this because just like we do with handicap accessibility, you know, we want to make it so that the entire environment is as inclusive as possible and people can find the spaces that are right for them. So creating, even in a small space like this, where we can get those six modalities and the different versions, hypo and hyper in them, it's really important that we design to have that inclusivity. And so when we start thinking about the landscape and a typical neighborhood and what that typical neighborhood might look like, Sarah, if you want to go to the next slide, please. Thank you. Then we can start really seeing that we can create kind of a hyper sensitive version and a hypo sensitive. So even again, in the small space, we can create kind of a more balanced setting 
that gives people options and choices and control. And this really gets to the heart of one size misfits all. The most important thing that we can do is give people options and choices so they can find the right environment for themselves. So on these slides, I won't get into all the detail because you're seeing a lot here, but I kind of want to break down how these slides work. So we talked about those six modalities of work and our research really goes into each one of those modalities and then evaluating kind of, you know, where those spaces fit in the ecosystem as Kay talked about. And then what does that mean for the exact design attributes that we need to apply to those spaces? So I want to say that, you know, we have a lot of detail here because at HOK, as designers at HOK, there's an art behind everything we do. And, you know, we definitely like everything to look pretty and be designed well, but there is an absolute science behind everything we do. So, you know, we really look at the research and we design based on what we've found. Um, so you see the ecosystem on the left. This would be a focus space, for example. The blue dot highlights where that hypersensitive focus space would be. And the pink space highlights the hyposensitive uh, focus space. And on the right, we've just broken down, you know, the exact design attributes for what that means, how you should apply color in that space, what the texture should be like, uh, what the acoustic treatment should be like, even down to the furniture. Um, so if you kind of through, you know, you'll see, you'll watch as the pink and blue um, uh, bubbles kind of shift throughout the ecosystem. But really what we're showing here is just going through each one of those six modalities um, and, showing how, you know, we've gone through the research of what these spaces actually need to be designed for. Um, so, you know, you can see how they shift throughout the plan. Um, it's important in proximity where these spaces are to each other, um, but it's, you know, just as important to get into the details of exactly what those colors, flooring materials, lighting, acoustic treatments, how we need to design for each of these spaces. In addition to this being the right thing to do to design for inclusivity, there's definitely a business case behind this in order to design workplaces that address mindfulness, health, safety, and well-being. And so what we wanted to do now is walk through a few images that show how do we take all of this science behind the neurodiversity and put it actually into the design of the space. So this reception area shows a lot of strong contrasts coupled with neutral materials. This is Stryker's office in Burlington, Ontario. It helps people feel grounded um, in a sophisticated setting, but it's calming. You've got access to water and beverages. There's a hospitality feel that helps people feel welcome. And being able to wash your hands right when you come in is obviously a, another important concern um, with in the COVID era. But there are just lots of elements that just help people feel safe as they're arriving in a new space. When you talk about lobbies or transition areas, uh, the concept here was about clear lines, easy navigation. There are some splashes of color that add interest, strong images reinforce branding and aid in the wayfinding. But again, natural materials, varied ceiling heights, different light levels start to define different areas within the space through subtle cues. And a bunch of different diverse work settings accommodate different various user needs. It's still welcoming and harmonious, but coupling all of those elements together. When we look at gathering spaces, creating lots of different types as Mary Kate and Kay have noted earlier is gonna be very important 
that it's not always just about sitting at a meeting table, that having, you know, locations where you can write on a whiteboard, where you can change your, like how your position is, whether you're on the bench by the wall or seated at a group around the table. Um, this, it just enables a more meaningful interaction. You can also see here, we've used color to reinforce some ideas and different textures within the space. When you talk about refreshing spaces, you know, we now more than ever need to create environments that enable mindfulness, that are a relief from the stress of the day, that provide comfort. So there's some crisp white furniture, a drop ceiling, some really interesting lighting. Um, the saturated colors make this area of convenes co-working space in LA an oasis from the rest of the workplace and just a place for people to stop, step away and refresh. Activity spaces are also important. These spaces are, are areas where individuals can go, get the excess energy out, socialize with friends in acceptable ways in a work setting, connect with people in casual ways on their own terms. This is a key element in helping people decompress and as part of the workplace as well, in addition to the re refreshed spaces. In passageways, uh, these are areas that can be activated. Um, this is done in this location by the use of color in Convene, um, creates visual, visual interest while highlighting and defining different seating areas and creates individual areas within the larger open office space. The graphic element along the stairs ties spaces together and acts as a wayfinding element as well. Common spaces are a great place to reinforce the idea of prospect and refuge. So what that is, is it relates back to this Savannah effect where humans instinctively seek safety and access to the essentials and comfort. And it's a very subconscious thing that we all know when we feel safe. And part of that has the, it has to do with the ability to see your surroundings, to see what's going on, but still be able to find that your own little niche within that space. It can be very unsettling if you can't get your bearings in a space. So we need to have that line of sight and be able to establish our sense of comfort within it. So all of this to say, we are no longer just design, designing environments. We are designing experiences for the well-being of people. So uh, let's leave back over to you all to see are the, if there are any questions that uh, we might be able to address. Oh, so many. Um, but first, how does this impact flooring? And if you could give us a list of maybe the top five to 10 items that you think are most important when considering surfacing materials, that would be great. The David Letterman reveal. Okay. All right. We got, we got you on that one. Because that's <laughs> a question we get asked all the time. So ladies, let's go for it. Sarah and, and Mary Kate, dive in. Yeah, I'll start. Okay. So Maintenance is a big one. Obviously, we want to make sure that any products that are being installed, any flooring, that you're considering the lifetime of that product. The smell or off-gassing of adhesives, you think about if someone's neurodiverse in the space, they may have heightened sensitivity to smell, and that's going to have an impact on them. Obviously, this ties into uh, sustainability uh, and lead credentials as well, um, but it's an important thing to consider for neurodiversity. Temperature is an interesting one because we have this innate perception around that concrete is cold and plush carpets are warm. And that when you're selecting flooring, 
picking something that contributes to the overall feeling of the space and how that might impact somebody who's neurodiverse is important. Friction. People want to feel secure in their surroundings. And if the floor is slippery, that's going to be a problem. We've all stepped on the floor in a high heel and like it starts to slide a little bit and that, you know, you're all of a sudden you're jostled. So making sure that whatever you're selecting is appropriate for the space. Uh, and then texture, you think about, you know, again, an LVT being smooth versus carpets having different kinds of textures. It's very important from a neurodiverse perspective to think about how different, um, you know, a plush carpet will feel different and contribute to a different type of feeling than an LVT will. I'm going to hand it over to Mary Kate for the top five. Sounds good. You do a, a good David Letterman. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so tone is super important um, in, you know, creating the vibe of the space. Are you feeling invigorated by the color or is it a more calming tone to the color? That's a really important value. Um, creating space definitions and territories. So when you change up the flooring material in the space, you feel like you're kind of entering a new zone or a new space. You might feel more sheltered by sitting in one defined territory over the other. So space is really important. Uh, pattern is super important and we know especially Tarquette offers flooring products of many different patterns so is the pattern very complex um, and could it be disorienting if you look down um, at the floor and you see a very complex pattern or is there clarity that can kind of guide you we find that people who are neurodiverse some not all have kind of an aversion to looking people in the eye when they're talking so if they're at work at their job they might find themselves looking down at the floor more. So pattern is very important as far as that disorienting factor. Um, orientation and how flooring helps you navigate through the space. I even think of orientation as like, um, you know, how you're applying the flooring product. Uh, for example, if you have like a wood look LVT, it could look very calming and give you some sense of clarity if it's just installed uh, in a linear orientation. Uh, but if you install that same piece of flooring material in a herringbone pattern, you're going to get a lot more variety there. Um, and acoustics, number one, I don't know if that's how David Letterman would announce it, but I think he was probably better at this. <laughs> but acoustics is very important. So we even think of like a rubber flooring material, obviously will have less sound uh, reverberation through the space when you're walking on it versus a VCT would have a lot more of kind of an echo or a sound to that. Those would be our David Letterman's top 10. <laughs> Excellent. You did a great job. <laughs> so would we, are you, are you ladies open to a little more Q&A? We have a yeah, couple let's more do questions. it. Sure. Um, so with all the research that you've done, how do you know which spaces to include and or to what degree those spaces and types should be applied when you're working with a client? So I think the key element here, if I might dive in, is that you want to uh, you want to do a, an assessment of the space first. You know, this is very important to know your culture, and to know um, what exactly the the people in your group need, right? Because it's going to be different if you're part of a creative firm. Um, versus an accounting or financial services. There's gonna be a different set of things that need to, um, to be assessed prior to, um, to diving into what needs to be applied into an individual space. Now, ideally, you're going to have things across the spectrum, and, uh, but you, you may need to increase hyposensitive spaces depending on your, um, on your team 
or the workplace that you're designing versus um, some of the more hypersensitive spaces, again, based on you know, the, the type of group that you have. There are easy things that can be tackled as well. Um, and you know, we can talk a little bit more about those. Um, you where if you already look and say, okay, I have a, a lot of color um, in my space right now, and maybe that needs to be toned back a little bit or vice versa, we can ramp up the color. And those are just ways that you can talk through with, um, with your clients or, or with your teams about um, how you can incorporate neurodiversity into your workplace. Yeah, that's amazing. So in thinking about how we're working today with all of the impact of COVID and all of the changes, because you're absolutely right, this is changing the way everyone works and is making everyone more sensitive. How, how would you apply this to those working remotely or in a hybrid situation? I can take that one because that's something I've thought a lot about lately. I work every day from home trapped in this one room and I've thought a lot about you know, how this would apply for everyone working remotely. I think the big thing here is we all have a heightened sensitivity to our surroundings now. So when we're gonna be going back into spaces, we're, gonna, we're all gonna be a lot more hypersensitive um, entering new environments. But I think, you know, uh, what's been important about working from home is we all have our specific sensory needs that we prefer over others. So I thought it was interesting when we started all of this work, we, uh, you know, started, you know, explaining this research to our designers, getting it embedded in everything that we do. And some of our designers were saying to Kay and I like, well, I'm not neurodiverse, but if I were, I might say that I would prefer this over the other. Or, you know, we've even had clients say, oh yeah, this, you know, doesn't really apply to us. I don't think we have any employees we need to accommodate that are neurodiverse. And it's like, the reality is we all are gonna prefer a lower light level to a higher light level for certain, certain different types of uh, working. I even find that during the day, it's like, if I need to be reviewing a document in detail, I need to be completely in an enclosed room with the door closed with extra noise canceling headphones on um, to have that level of focus. But maybe if I'm in a more social environment, I would prefer uh, you know, a different um, design attribute <laughs> to that space. I even feel that sometimes I wanna feel cozier. I wanna have a blanket on me when I'm working from home or be in more of a lounge position. Um, versus some other tasks that require me to be at a desk or you know, in a more formal situation. So I think the key thing here is we all will have a heightened sensitivity uh, returning to work, but we're able to, working from home, really customize our environment and our working experience. And I think people, as they return to the office, will be desiring that same level of control and, and choice regarding the environment that they work in. Yeah, and Mary-Kate, I think one of the other advantages, um, you know, there are a lot of people that just don't feel comfortable in the workplace and or around people. And so the ability to work from home, which they may not have had before, limited their ability to be hired. And so now we can tap into a much wider range of people, whether it's, you know, uh, working parents that, that didn't want to uh, have to travel or commute, uh, whether it's people that just don't feel comfortable. And so um, I think it's it's actually been a big help. But on the flip side of that, for people that are hypo sensitive and need that energy, if you're stuck in a space without any stimulation, you know, you can be really struggling right now. And there's a lot of people that are feeling 
isolated right now. And so we're looking forward to the day where people really have options and choice, not only within the workplace, but about where they work in the first place. Exactly. So what do you, what do you feel companies could do right now if they're looking at their existing space to make it more inclusive and more welcoming as people come back to work or, or take new jobs within a company? Yeah. I'll take that one since I touched on it a little bit before. And so our recommendation would be to first just take a look at the obvious. Uh, and, and now that you know a little bit more about neurodiversity, try also looking at it through a slightly different lens. So color is a big one um, that maybe you have either, you know, not the right distribution of color through your space right now. Orientation is a big one um, to take a look at what your flooring material is. See if it is contributing to the wayfinding through the space and defining spaces in ways that help the employees rather than a distracting or uh, a, something that would lead you astray if you're a person who always looks down at the floor. But we think the number one thing is to give people the choice to weigh in on what do your employees need in that space um, to help the, the space be um, as inclusive as possible. Yeah, I'm going to tag in and just say, you know, uh, are there rooms that you can convert that might be underutilized now that uh, you could convert to focus rooms? Or can you create some fidget furniture spaces where people can move? You know, not everybody can sit around a conference for two hours in a meeting, you know, so can we create a variety of meeting spaces that allow people to get up and maybe walk around or sit in the back or move or write on the wall? Um, and, and again, I think the number one thing is really providing people with options and choices so that neurotypicals and neurodivergents alike can all find the space that fits not only their sensory, um, their sensory perceptions of the spaces, but really address the task at hand that they're trying to perform. Love it. And how, I guess, this would apply to what Mary-Kate and Kay, you mentioned earlier. How would you apply this in a COVID area, era? Sorry, excuse me. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, I, 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 so I'm just gonna tag into on one thing, Mary-Kate, before you jump in on that one. Um, I think one of the things you think about prospect and refuge, and I wanna pick up on something that Sarah said earlier, <laughs> we're all prospecting when we go to the grocery store, right? We're all looking down the aisle. That is a really important concept. The number one concern right now is, am I safe and do I have control and what's coming around me and where am I? And so uh, having those clear lines, those vistas and those areas that you can kind of tuck into and pop into are really important. Yeah, and I think we just all have to be more sensitive as we're asking people or, you know, making the journey back into the office or shared environments, just be more sensitive to what everyone's experiencing. Cause we've all seen the fights breaking out in the grocery store of people wearing masks versus not. And, you know, everyone's on edge. Everyone has a heightened sensitivity. So I think, you know, sensitivity and just understanding going back to work is going to be important. And, you know, as Kay mentioned, we've unlocked, you know, big corporations have unlocked this new acceptance of work from home policies. So that's great for people who are on the neurodiverse spectrum, who have a diagnosed condition who, that might make them more hypersensitive. They now can perform their tasks at home in a secure environment and feel safe. But whether or not you've been necessarily diagnosed with a neurodiverse condition, this applies for everyone going back, I think. So 
you know, there's a lot of people who have been working in complete isolation who are craving that creative collaborative experience going back. And then there are a lot of working parents at home who are ready to stop all the acoustic stimulation they've been getting in their homes and go back to a very controlled, quiet environment. Um, so I think, you know, whether or not um, people choose to continue to work remotely, there's always going to be the, you know, need to come back into the office at some point for something. And so I think just the more that we design these ecosystems of diverse spaces, um, it just supports everyone. Yes, and this is such a great opportunity. I know you probably don't hear that very often when speaking about COVID and workplace change, but it really does give us the platform and the reason to revisit everything that we do and how we do it. So this is a great way to take advantage of that. Well, thank, thank you, you guys for inviting us to the conversation because we really do truly believe there is an art to what we do, but there is a science to what we do. And every choice we make in the environment from you know, lighting to flooring should have that science of design applied to it so that we're creating more inclusive, uh, welcoming environments for everyone. So thank you guys for engaging us in the discussion today. Anytime, let's do it again soon. Thank let's you. <laughs> this concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.